All right, here I am, and I've got my Bible almost to the place where I need to be. All right, we are in a series on eschatology, the doctrine of the last things, and we've titled it, What's Next? Waiting for the Kingdom to Come, and we've covered a lot, but we're presently in a ever-expanding part of the this, this series on the gospel. I thought I would do this in two sessions. What is the gospel? And then the gospel to the Jews. But it's turning into a little longer as I realize that in order to explain this without losing you or confusing you, I have to be a little clearer about some things. So uh, this will probably go one more week into next week. So the gospel is the good news that God will bring global and relational peace. It announces peace. He's going to bring good things that we rejoice in. He's going to bring salvation, Yeshua, and the full reign of God, the God of Israel, over all the earth. Now we know that that gospel, when it first was presented, uh, came to the Jews first, uh, and that many Jews accepted uh, that Jesus was the Messiah, and that message then spread to God-fearing Gentiles, and then finally to pagans who had turned from idols to the living God, as Paul talks about. So we're aware that over time a split occurred in this. I'm having a little trouble with my notes. Okay. Uh, a split occurred between those who followed Yeshua, uh, and that included Jews and Gentiles, and those who held to Torah in the uh, more traditional framework. Both those who were of faith and those who were of works. We'll talk about that. That split began to happen, and last week I addressed the split in terms of talking about the problems of the gospel being presented to Jews in Paul's day. Paul tells us that some of the Jews in his day misunderstood or didn't know about the righteousness of faith, and they were trying to establish their own righteousness to uh, bring about uh, salvation. And Paul says that can't be done. You can't do that by Torah observance. He also explained that whereas there was a partial and temporary hardening of Israel so that they wouldn't quite see that veil over them as they read so that that would keep them from coming into full awareness of Yeshua as Messiah and the kingdom beginning. So that opened the door for the Gentiles to come to faith. And so that veil to some extent is there uh, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Paul calls that a mystery. And finally, he claims that despite the stumbling block of the message of the cross and of righteousness by faith, there is a remnant of Israel that remains faithful to God as in the days of Elijah. And he also claims that in, in addition to that remnant, that he, as a Jew and other Jewish believers, are kind of a first portion of Israel that is coming to faith, almost like a first fruits. And he says that if they are holy, then the lump is holy, uh, using an illustration from the law. He claims that not all the Jews are Israel. There's a wicked portion that God will shake out. He talks about that. The prophets talk about that. That's not a rejection of Israel but of those who claim to be Israel and reject God. He says, ultimately, all Israel will be saved, and when that happens, it will be life from the dead. 
So I talked about that last week, and I want to now this week begin to talk about the problems of presenting the gospel to Jews today. We have to remember there's a major distinction between Judaism in Paul's time, Judaism today, the faith of Yeshua in Paul's time, and the faith of Yeshua in Christianity today. So as much as possible, I want to address that history of the alteration of the gospel, really an adaptation of the gospel, initially to the Jews and also to the Gentiles, to really predominantly a gospel to the Gentiles, with the problems then of sharing faith in Yeshua with the Jewish people. And to do that, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to look at several verses here to kind of lay a foundation. Then I'm going to give the history, and then I'll give the results. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse uh, 19 uh, to 22. Paul says, uh, he's talking about his preaching of the gospel under, uh, really in some sense against his will. He says, I'm not doing it for money. There's a compulsion here. And he says, though I am free from all men... Uh, I have made myself a slave to all of them for, uh, for the purpose of winning some of them. He means winning them through the gospel. So now we hit a verse that you're familiar with, verse 20. So to the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not myself being under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. And to those who are without the law, as without the law, though not without law of God, but under the law of Messiah, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, so that I might win the weak. And I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some of them. Now, it's very important that we catch what Paul is saying. His goal is to bring everyone he can to the Messiah. That is to believe that God sent Yeshua to die and rise from the dead, to remove the penalty of sin, and ultimately bring salvation to the whole creation and the adoption of sons, which is the resurrection. To do this, Paul believes that he has to be able to meet people where they are. And he speaks of what I believe are three categories. He talks about Jews. He talks about those who are under the law. And then those who are without the law. He also talks about the weak. I will talk about that just briefly. Now, many Bible commentators see this as two groups. Jews and those under the law, and then Gentiles, those who are not under the law. But Paul says this with three phrases. So many also, and I am one of those, uh, see this as three categories. Now, some see it as Jews, and then those who are under the law as proselytes, those who have converted into Judaism, and while they're not Jews, they're under the law, and then Gentiles. So the general idea of Paul's meaning is not changed by these differences, but I want to express it the way I see it. I've been looking at this passage for a long time and trying to figure this out. Paul speaks of Jews, which I think is probably a category of, of those Jews whose Jewish identity is 
is not so focused on the law. I mean, they live as Jews because their family are Jews. We all know people who live within a people-religious context, and the religion is incidental to them. And so these people are Jews, and Paul says, I became as those Jews. Uh, Then he says, uh, to those under the law, I think that refers to anyone who was part of the various sects of Judaism, Sadducees, Pharisees, Zealots, those who had a very serious idea about the law, though they differed on it. They had a very serious idea about what the law was, and they followed a pattern of obedience. And he said, in a sense, I came to those who take the law seriously, they're under the law, and they do it this way, and I came to them living in that context, even though that might not be my particular interpretation of the law in that context. And finally, he speaks of those without the law. He really says lawless or Torahlessness. Clearly, that's the Gentiles. Though he adds that even while he's living in their context, he is not without law. He's not lawless. But he follows his observance and his halakha under what he terms the law of Messiah. That, I think, is his his lordship allegiance to Yeshua which Paul in other places claims that as a result of living that way, he has done nothing against the Torah or the traditions of his people, because he really understands that, having been, and still in some sense, being a Pharisee in that sense. So I believe that we should follow this pattern. What Paul's pattern is, is that I come to people where they are, not where they should be, not where I am, but where they are, though when I come to where they are, I still continue to be who I am. I don't, I'm not uh, play-acting in that framework. I'm not a hypocrite about it. But I talk to them from their perspective. I interact with them from their perspective. I come from where they are to where they can understand where I am coming from. That, I think, is important. So... What is the differences that have taken place uh, in this context? What is Paul dealing with? And what is the shift that has taken place to make the gospel what it is um, today? So first, in Paul's day, ethnicity and religion were more closely connected, particularly for Jews, but but true of, of all, even the pagans. To, to be a Jew connected you with the Jewish God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and with the temple of that God in Jerusalem. So you'd be identified as a Jew, even in the diaspora, as belonging to that God of Abraham that uh, has his temple in his holy city of Jerusalem, and all of the things that those Jews do related to the covenants. Gentiles were also associated with their gods and their ethnicities because often gods were ethnic gods or city gods or local gods. And people tended to stay in their own places in that context. Now it's a little uh, different in the Roman Empire in that there were a number of people moving away from the pagan gods 
towards the God of Abraham, but not enough to convert. They were called God-fearers. They might show up in the uh, synagogues. They did some of the things that were biblical. They're the kind of people we see in Acts chapter 10 with the house of Cornelius. So the gospel to the Jews in this time was explained and argued in the context of Second Temple Judaism. So you can see that in the book of Acts when Paul is talking to the Jews in general, when he's talking to Pharisees and tying in the issue of resurrection. He has to fight with the Sadducees about the very fact of resurrection. So he is really talking to them from their context. And he does that particularly in the synagogues, both in Israel and in the diaspora. Now the second thing is, that at the time of Paul, Yeshua faith was attached to Judaism. And its primary leaders were Jewish. And the central location of the movement was Jerusalem and the temple. And so, for at, at first, it just looked like this group that believed in Yeshua was just maybe another one of these sets of Judaism. And it was drawing Jews from the various other groups. And even some who had not been, in effect, under the law. They were just Jewish who had come in. Now third, the entrance of the Gentiles into the faith was significant but compartmental. In other words, while the temple stood and the movement was predominantly in Jerusalem, there were Gentiles, but they were kind of a add-on that nobody's quite sure what to do with. Uh, when, when Peter goes to the house of Cornelius and baptizes them, they say, okay, I guess the scripture says this, and they're probably coming to faith, so we're, we're going to, uh, God's calling them out for a people for his name, that's fine. But they're not really focused on that. Uh, now, later, Paul begins to share the faith to Gentiles, and the struggle now is what to do with these Gentiles. Do we make them converts to Judaism? And that's what Acts 15 is about. Or do we let them be the saved from the nations? And that's what the apostles and the elders decided. That the faith would be the same. It is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But there would, there would be uh, that uniting uh, would be... Uh, in the faith, but the behavior might be somewhat different. Jews and Gentiles would act out this faith somewhat different. Jews would not incorporate circumcision. Uh, there were other things, probably some of the dietary laws that weren't part of it, but some of them were. Uh, there was going to be a difference. And as Moses was read in the synagogue, those differences would be worked out. And that's what Acts 15 is really about. Now what happens now is what I call the tail wagging the dog. The destruction of the temple had an effect on all Jewish faith and also on Yeshua faith. Because now this notion that Yeshua had said that the temple would be destroyed had been done. But they kind of had an idea that he was going to raise it back up, right? The, the temple was still part of the hope of the gospel, and Jerusalem was part of the hope of, of the gospel, and now that thing is laid flat. Everybody is scattered back into the diaspora. And so Judaism, 
the Yeshua Jews uh, and those who accepted him from among the Gentiles have a difficult process whereby they have to figure out what they're going to do. And the Yeshua Jews will ultimately be rejected by their Jewish brethren and their faith will be seen as heresy. So there will be a split between Yeshua Jews and uh, Jews who are not Yeshua Jews. In addition, Judaism now has to rethink itself as a diaspora faith, which it had already been doing, but it was now going to have to think differently about how they wait for God to fulfill his promises. Now among the emerging Gentile adherents to Jewish faith, there are going to be battles over Torah, what part of the Torah do we do? What part of the Torah do we not do? Jewish identity, what do, we, what do we do with the Jews? Because there are more Gentiles now in this faith than Jews. And how do we maintain a unity of the faith? Because there were multiple Christianities forming in various areas. And the result of that struggle was replacement theology that said, well, we're now Israel, we're now the church, we're now the people of God, Israel no longer has a central place, and anything that's an overt Jewish expression, like circumcision, those things will be removed from these Christianities because we don't trust those. Jews who follow Jesus now will be required to reject the Sabbath and all the other holy days, to stop following those stricter dietary requirements of the Torah, and they need to give up circumcision. Now, this is a clear violation of the agreement made between the apostles and elders of how the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers would act. They had said the Jewish believers will continue to live Torah-based lives with faith in Yeshua, and the Gentiles will live with faith in Yeshua and an adapted form of the Torah uh, as it relates to Gentiles. Now this violation of that agreement will unevenly ebb and flow until Christianity will unite. But the un unity of Christianity uh, in the 3rd, 4th uh, century is not so much a relational one based on love. It's going to be based on doctrine and the enforcement of a hierarchy structure within the church that is going to maintain that people who are not towing the line as we see it are out. So many Christian groups will be rejected, like the monocyphite, the people who believe that Jesus has one nature, uh, that's a divine nature, but he had a human body, the people who said, no, he has a divine nature and he has a human uh, nature rule uh, uh, because of the councils, and therefore those uh, monocyphite Christians get kicked out. That would include the Coptic churches and the uh, Syriac churches and some of those Eastern Oriental churches that are not part of Eastern Orthodoxy, but, but are on the, the uh, periphery of, of the church in that context. So they get rejected, and of course, with that, Jewish identity and observance is going to be swept away by a rising Christian anti-Semitism. So Jews who follow Jesus have to convert from being a Jew to becoming a Christian. 
And this is now the gospel to the Jews. Jesus is God, and faith requires giving up the patriarchs, giving up the covenants, and giving up the hope of return to the land. There will be a developing amillennial uh, kind of theology that we'll talk about later in this series. The Crusades later will also leave the Jews out of the promise as the church attempts to regain Jerusalem, but not for the purpose of reestablishing the throne of David, but to establish this replacement throne of Jesus as the victor. Now, I'd like to say that later this would get better, but it doesn't. The reformers were not much better. Martin Luther, for a while, saw error in the separation of Israel and the church. So his answer was that the Jews should join the church and accept the Reformation version of the gospel, which is faith alone saves. There is no requirement from the Torah or the prophets. You just believe in Jesus and live as good Germans, and all is well. Now, for the Jew, that continues to mean no Torah, no covenant, no continuation of the way of life given by God, and no hope of the regathering and the restoration of Israel. Well, given that choice, the Jews rejected that gospel, and Luther unleashed an anti-Semitism within the Protestant movement that surpassed even the replacement theology and really, in some sense, set the seeds for what would later be manifest in the Holocaust. Now, modernity brought another challenge. Modernity and the Enlightenment gave the idea of secularism. That's a no-God zone. That's where we now can think of the world operating on its own, and we don't really need God. Religion now becomes superstition. We now have science, and we have reason. Who needs God? Freud is going to give us a way of looking at our problems as neuroses and not as sin. Marx is going to give us a way to bring heaven on earth so we don't need the promised kingdom. And Darwin is going to tell us that we don't need to have a creator. We evolved. So with those three, psychology, sociology, and anthropology, these secular behavioral sciences give us a new world without a creator, without heaven, or without sin. And secularism now is the rival to religiosity, not paganism, because paganism is all but God. There's no need for Jews and Judaism, because they're a holdover from that ancient world. And there's very little need for Christianity, so Christianity is going to have to struggle with that, and it's going to split Christianity into uh, liberal theology and conservative theology. There will be world wars as we move into the 1900s, and anti-Semitism in Europe will bring about the Holocaust. The Jews are the problem, and the Third Reich, the Third Reign of Germany, which was seen as a restoration of the Holy Roman Empire, would eliminate those Jews. So the Jews experienced all of this as a hatred uh, and another Christian act against them. Now Christians say, wait a minute, that wasn't Christian. Those who did it claim to be doing it for Christ. So, the modern period also produced a new kind of missionary movement. 
beginning with the exploration of the world in the late 1400s and then moving towards colonization, even up to and through the late 1800s. And this viewed the gospel as a method of eliminating primitive culture and imposing Christian culture on the foreign people. Now, for the most part, Christian culture was Euro-American with all its doctrine, all its worship, and all its morals. And the converts were supposed to conform to this, whether it was a Catholic form of it or a Protestant form of it. And in this new missionary movement, the gospel was simple. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved from your sins. There is no connection with the God of Israel, no connection with the covenants, no connection with the promises. Get saved and go to heaven. It's now an individualistic gospel. It will be challenged with a social gospel and with liberation theology, but even those will not see Israel or Jews as a good thing. This movement began to rethink not the gospel, but the implication of this individual gospel. And so we got a new adaptation. They looked at this passage that we read earlier where Paul said he became all things to all people. And they began to realize that Paul became all things to all people, but seemed to leave their identity and their culture intact with just some adaptation towards the commandments. So maybe God saves people within their identity and within their culture. And so the missionary said, maybe God saves Japanese people as Japanese, and Mexicans as Mexican, and Yanomami as Yanomami. In other words, Swedes as Swedes. We then need to make the gospel relevant to people we are speaking with, and the result will be that we will, res- we will end up with a cultural form of the gospel in each of these languages and cultures. So we end up with Korean churches and Spanish-speaking churches and black churches, each having a slightly different worship style and ministry approach. This was called indigenization. And it made perfect sense because, after all, that's the way we will be in heaven, or so they thought. So in in Revelation chapter 7... These missiologists saw this passage, and it made sense to them. Chapter 7 of Revelation, verse 9. I'm in Hebrews, that's why it doesn't look right. (laughs) Revelation, chapter 7, verse 9. After these things, notice they just start at verse 9, because before that, They would have seen all of the Israelites, but they ignore that. And start at verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages, tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the elders that were standing around the throne, the elders and the four living creatures, they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders said to me, Who are these clothed in white robes? Who are they? And where have they come from? And I said, 
My Lord, I don't know. And he said to me, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they're before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any longer. The sun will not beat down on them or any heat. And the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So this new looking at the church was not that we're going to be all exactly the same, but we're going to have an American church and a British church and a, a, a Mexican church or Spanish-speaking churches or um, Italian churches, uh, Japanese churches. All of the nations will be in this uh, heavenly vision, and therefore the gospel needs to be adapted and discipleship needs to somewhat have part of that identity and that culture in it. Well, all except one. There can't be a Jewish form of this because replacement theology continues to keep Jews and the original expression of Yeshua faith as being excluded. Well, maybe they can be in there, but they're not central to the church. So what's the result? The result then is this. The gospel now is no matter uh, what your ethnicity, whatever your language or background is, you can be saved. You simply accept that this God named Jesus is your Savior. And you help others to find him. And he will forgive your sin and take you to heaven when you die. Now don't try to follow the law. Because that will make you a legalist, and legalists can't be saved. That's what the Jews are doing, and they certainly are lost. That's the mindset that people have. So the gospel then to the Jew becomes this. Your identity and your history with God is all wrong. And it's really hated by God in Jesus. But he still loves you. And if you will turn from your identity and reject your people, and reject your way of life that was God-directed, and your beliefs, you can be saved just like us and go to heaven. Now that does not sound like good news to most Jews. And that's what they're hearing. Now, next week I want to explain the problem of trying to bring the gospel back to Jews, because uh, what I've just described is a general statement, and there are various types of Jews with various types of perspectives on what is Judaism, and what are the promises, and what are the commandments, and therefore, if we're going to be to all of those what they are and talk to them, we're going to have to have some understanding of that. Because we, if we bring the gospel back to being a Jew, we have to know what that is. And it's not Second Temple Judaism. This is because Judaism has also changed over time with the loss of the temple. And the Judaisms of today perceive the gospel as completely unrelated to them. Because they have had to work without the promises in, in their traditional way. And they have substituted different views. So just as Paul said, in some sense they are ignorant of what the Torah says, 
because they've emphasized some aspects of it and ignored others, and the church has emphasized some aspects and ignored others, we're talking past each other. So I'm going to talk about that with specifics about secular Jews, religious Jews, Reformed Jews, Orthodox Jews, Haredim, all of those. Next week I couldn't put that in this week's message too. So let's go ahead and pray and then we'll do Q&A if you have some questions. Father, we 